Almighty God and Father, we worship you and praise you this morning. And we desperately need you. We need you by your spirit to rend the heavens and come down, to fill our hearts and our minds again with your presence and your power, with your love and your mercy, with an assurance of your forgiveness, a rea- a, a, an acknowledgement of your grace. God, you see every soul, every heart, every mind that is joining us now in every living room and study, basement, the few of us here in the sanctuary, you see us, oh God. And you know us. You know where we're afraid and where we're encouraged. And we simply cry out to you, Lord, to meet us in this this time as we open the scriptures. Meet us in your power and in your love. We ask that you would change us by your mercy and by your grace. That you would do something to us. Give us ears to hear, O Lord. And may you speak words of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Many years ago, my oldest daughter, Chloe, and I hiked up Mount Monadnock in southern New Hampshire. And it was a beautiful, sunny day in December, actually. And one of the great memories of that experience was being able to look out uh, across the, the sky, out into the horizon, and see the skyline of Boston, 62 miles away. It was pretty spectacular. It wasn't something we expected. We actually hadn't really researched the trip. We were more or less just going camping, but we ended up climbing the peak as well. The the view from a mountaintop gives us perspective, and you don't have to climb mountains to know this reality. If you've ever, as you have, many of you, probably all of you have taken off from Logan and you start to gain altitude and you look out over the city, most likely to find your home, your neighborhood, it gives you a whole kind of different perspective on things. Gaining elevation enables us to see. Last week we began a series on 1 Peter, and, and Peter in his introduction and greeting refers to them as the elect, the chosen of God, and the exiles. Those who, because they belong to God, don't belong to the world around them. And that becomes the source of the tension in their lives that Peter's letter will go on to address. But now he takes us up to the mountaintop in verses 3 through 5, which is our text for this morning. With these verses, Peter begins to engage a sustained reflection on a Christian self-understanding. Who are we? What are we? And how does this matter for our lives? This reflection will occupy Peter all the way to the the, the 10th verse of chapter 2. And he begins this reflection by declaring the truth about himself and the Christians in Asia Minor to whom he is writing and all Christians up to the present day. In particular, Peter draws our attention to the reality of our hope, what Peter calls a living hope. And that is our subject for our time this morning. We need this, don't we? It's been another long week, week after week after week. And I know that for many of us, it's just challenging. Uh, and that wears on. We, we, need hope. we need to talk about hope at all times, but especially in the midst of a pandemic. We're cut off from family and friends. We're cut off from our normal routines, cut off from work, cut off from school, cut off from uh, all kinds of normal activities for our lives. And if we have children for our children's lives, we're saturated with bad news and we're discouraged by the increasing death toll and the difficulty for our healthcare workers. 
We're facing continued shelter-in-place rules and th through May 18th at least. And on top of all that, we're facing uncertainty about our jobs, uh, our businesses, our financial well-being on the back end of this. There's a lot to be concerned about. And we desperately, in the midst of circumstances like these, we need clarity about our hope. What is your hope, I wonder? We desperately need to know the reality of hope. If you're a Christian and you're listening in this morning, I want to encourage you today through Peter's words in verses 3 through 5. If you're joining in and you're investigating Christianity, I want you to hear the invitation of these words into a true and living hope. This is our desire for you. We don't hide that. It's not a secret. We believe that in Jesus we have found true life. And we long for you to come and know that life, not in a pushy kind of way, but in the prompting of God in your soul and in your heart. And I hope that our engagement of these three verses will issue an invitation to you to come to hope. The view from the mountaintop is clear, crystal clear. William Barclay, a commentator on 1 Peter, noted in, back in 1976, he said, there are few passages in the New Testament where more of the great fundamental Christian ideas come together. This little passage here brings so much together for us. And from these heights, we can discern the basic contours of the Christian gospel. This is how Peter begins in verse 3. Blessed be or praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The way we'll approach this is we'll see in particular the origin of our living hope, the basis of our living hope. And thirdly, the substance of our living hope. Origin, basis, and substance. So first, the origin of our hope. Hope, generally, is a sense of expectation for the future. It's an expectation of good things, of better days yet to come, of future fulfillment or peace or the satisfaction of desire. It's an expectation of a future that is better than the present that we're experiencing now, however good or bad that present may be. And to hope... To look forward to the future in some way is basically human. When we lose hope, our humanity is diminished. So we often, when we think about hope, we hope in various things like a political leader or a career path or a particular investment portfolio or our city pulling together. Remember back after the marathon bombing seven years ago and the theme Boston Strong about the city pulling together to make it a better and safer place. Or we hope in scientists and companies that are working hard to find a vaccine for the novel coronavirus. Because we believe that through these things, often very good things, a better future will come. A better future is possible. And that is the case. Quite in fact, many, many good things do come about as the result of hard work, sharp minds, strong leadership, healthy relationships, increased wealth, and scientific and technological discoveries. Christians should be the first of all people to give thanks for the work of these things as blessings from the hand of God. And it is right and good to be hopeful in these realities and to lead and participate in such efforts as an expression of our love for God and our love for our neighbors. But at the end of the day, such hopes fall short of anchoring the burden of our lives. And they do so in at least two essential ways. First, there is the reality of moral evil that inflicts even our best efforts at making a better future. 
The great hope of the Enlightenment was that reason alone could lead us to a utopia. But the lessons of history have obviously shown us otherwise. The wars, the genocides, the purges of the 20th century alone rebuke such naivete. And second, there is the reality of death itself on a personal level and the unwinding of the cosmos on a macro level. Both represent a kind of base reality from which our best efforts at progress cannot escape us, cause us to escape. In the words of the physicist and theologian John Polkinghorne, whatever hopes there might be of human progress within history, they can amount to no more than a stay of execution of a sentence of inevitable futility. It is clear that a kind of evolutionary optimism that seeks a lasting fulfillment within the unfolding process of the present world is just not possible for us. In other words, we are powerless to change the unraveling of death and the slowly burning out star that we call the sun. The entire cosmos is a bit, bit like the raised garden beds I built at my house five years ago with some two by fours that we had left over from a different project and they were not pressure treated two by fours. They weren't cedar as you should build these kinds of garden boxes out of and I knew that. And so of course, five years later, they have faded and split and quite literally disintegrated, spilling out the guts of soil all over the yard. And that same process that took place to my garden beds over the last five years is happening to my body as well, hopefully less noticeably, and as well to our world on a big scale. I, I recognize this paints a grim picture, but I believe that we also know it's an accurate picture of the reality in which we find ourselves. Thankfully, however, there is good news, better and more complete good news than if all that I just represented was reversed. See, our hopes within the frame of human history, good as they may be, are not living hopes. They originate from within the world, tainted by sin and death. And so they are themselves infected with these realities and unable to escape their impact. But Peter's opening words in verse 3 speak to the origin of a living hope. He erupts into praise of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he, the God of life, the creator, the covenantal God of Israel, now identified by Peter as the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this God's mercy is the origin of our new life and our living hope. This, is the, this only true God has been faithful to his covenant and his covenant promises that we read about in Isaiah 65, this vision of a new heavens and a new earth that God had promised to bring about. This was always the hope of Israel. Always the hope of God's people. And this hope was now being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. From a Christian point of view, the only hope that we call a living hope is a hope that comes to us from outside our human frame of reference. It includes creation, but it does not originate from those created. In other words, our only hope is ultimately God himself. He is the only one who can overcome the inevitable death that we all face, the inevitable disordering of the world in which we live and of the cosmos. No other hope, however good it may be, and many of our hopes are good, can face that reality squarely and overcome it. No other hope can be the foundation of our lives and confront the power of death and decay, save this hope. This is the testimony of the psalmist. In Psalm 146, the psalmist says, 
Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. The prince isn't a good place to put our hope because the prince cannot overcome the reality of death itself. And your hopes in him will perish with him, the psalmist says. But the psalmist continues in verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Why? As he finishes the psalm in verse 10, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord, the psalmist says. The God that we proclaim, the God of heaven and earth, the creator God, the covenantal God, the God who made a commitment to his creation, that's the God in whom we rest our hope, a hope that can hold our lives. As Peter takes us up to the mountaintop and casts his eye upon the spectacular view of, of this God and his mercy toward us, he erupts in praise. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, Psalm 115.1, but to your name, give glory. I wonder, do we praise him? It's perhaps the first place of thinking about an application of this text. Do we praise the living God? Do we bubble up and over with this kind of eulogy and doxology that Peter does here? Not out of a slavish duty, but rather because we see clearly, in full view, the glories and the wonders of what he has accomplished, of what he has promised. This is who we are, a people of praise, a people of living hope, hope that's rooted in the God of heaven and earth. So secondly, if God is the origin of our living hope, what is its basis? What is the basis of this hope? And Peter clarifies this at the end of verse 3. We are given a new birth, he says, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus. This is at the heart of our Christian faith. And this is the basis of the Christian's claim to new life. The grounding event, the fundamental reality that enables our new birth into a living hope. Take away the resurrection and you take everything away. There's nothing left but a pile of rubble, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The entire proclamation of the Christian gospel rests upon, depends upon, is laid upon the foundation of the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. But Christ has in fact been raised, Paul will go on to say, having defeated evil and sin and death at the cross. And you who are united to him by faith are now new creatures. You have been reborn into a living hope. Now, what do I mean? I mean that the basis of our living hope, a hope that is not diminished by death or decay, is the reality that Christ now stands, as we saw together a few weeks ago on Easter Sunday, Christ now stands on the other side of death, never to die again. He inhabits the new creation of God that Isaiah promised with a new creation body that God has given him through the power of resurrection. And he is alive now and he always will be. And, and this and is crucially important. We are with him in his new life. Inseparably so. That is the heart of the Christian gospel. That we have been unioned with Christ by faith. And we stand with him in this resurrection life and world. New birth is the, the, the metaphor that Peter uses here. Also used by John in John chapter 3. Or by Jesus when he speaks with Nicodemus. New birth. That means that we have died with Christ to our old way of life under sin. As Christ himself died on the cross with our sins bear, bore upon him. And he has been raised, we have been raised with Christ to a new way of life in the power of the Spirit. 
It's this that makes our hope a living hope. For we are in a very real sense through the agency of the Holy Spirit with Christ in his new and indestructible life. Even now, even in the midst of this pandemic, even as we face the struggles and the trials and the challenges and the exhaustion of our present circumstances. Imagine what those circumstances were like for the first Christians receiving this letter in Asia Minor, suffering for their faith, experiencing persecution, outsiders and exiles in the culture in which they found themselves, and not inheritors of any rights or privileges. And there they are, and Peter says, look, you've been born again. You've been brought into a new birth by the great mercy of God, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You share in that new life. That Peter himself witnessed after the event of Easter morning. Here's how Paul says it in Colossians 1 or Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. How does this new birth into resurrection life happen? Peter uses this word of born again or new birth one more time in chapter 1 in verse 23 when he says this. He says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The word, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the proclamation of Christ and him crucified and resurrected. As the apostles, empowered by the Spirit, went out into the Greco-Roman world with this good news and they began to preach it and speak it and declare it and proclaim it and issue a summons to all who would hear it to come to this new king and bow the knee and repent and believe and walk in his ways. People responded. They found their hearts strangely warmed. They came to a new kind of life. They rejected and let go of old ways of living and embraced a new kind of living under this one king. And as that word went out and as it has continued to go out for the last 2,000 years, proclaimed in the power of the Spirit, people hear the word and they respond by faith letting go of all other allegiances and embracing the one true King Jesus and finding in so doing that they have been too born again into a living hope. Faith comes by hearing, Paul says, hearing through the word of Christ. And that's what Peter says. That's how you were born again into a living hope. It was the word that was proclaimed to you, the living and abiding word, a word that doesn't come back void. And that's why the church throughout the last two millennia has prioritized the proclamation of the word of God because it's by that word proclaimed that we come into the new life and into the living hope. This is how it takes place. This is how it took place in all of our lives if we are a Christian today. This is how it could take place in your life if you are not yet a follower of Jesus. It's by hearing the word. Open up the scriptures, the Bible. Take it up. Look into it. Read it. Ask questions and learn. And this word can bring life. And new birth. So on what basis do we go around proclaiming a living hope? It's not on the basis of having some subjective experience, though certainly knowing Christ will do something to us in our experience. It's not the conjuring up of a certain kind of emotions, though certainly knowing Christ will produce emotion in us that overflows out of us in various ways. It's not the living up to a certain set of moral standards Though certainly being with Christ and belonging to Christ will bring about the obedience of faith with which Paul opens and closes his letter to the Romans. 
No, the basis of our living hope, as Peter plainly declares here at the end of verse 3, is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and our reception of new birth through our union with him by faith. Despite the reality of ongoing decay, despite the unwinding of the universe which will end if the expansionary forces went out in the words again of Polkinghorne, in the whimper of a cold decay, or if the force of gravity and attraction wins out in the, in the, uh, in the burning of a fiery collapse, we have a living hope because Christ is alive. Despite the prevailing reality of death, the idea and fear of which, in the words of Ernest Becker from his Pulitzer Prize-winning 1972 book, The Denial of Death, haunts the human animal like nothing else. We have a living hope because Christ was raised from the dead. In this sense, we can be a little bit like a rubber ducky in a kid's bath. I remember we had a rubber ducky that we used with our kids when they took baths, and some of you are in that stage of life right now. No matter what came the way of the duck, waves, wind, other toys being crushed upon it, or kids' feet crushing it to the bottom of the bathtub, it always tended to bounce back up with a smiley face. Now, don't run too far with that analogy. It would get us into trouble. Um, the Christian life is not one big smiley happy face, to be clear. It's a long race of endurance that encounters all kinds of emotions. But there's a sense in which the reality of our living hope rests on the fact that Jesus is upright on the other side of the grave, beckoning us to come to him, to know him, to experience his rest and peace and care and life, inviting us to join into this new life with him. And this reality informs our living, our thinking, our dying as the people of God. So having seen the origin, having considered the basis, let's now turn finally to the substance of this living hope into which we have been reborn. There is, the, of course, the reality of life right now, in the present, with Christ, and by the Spirit. And this will become clear as Peter continues his letter. But as with all hope, our living hope looks to the future. As Paul says in Romans 8, now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Our living hope is hoping for things that we do not yet see. And the key dimension of those things is given to us in verse 4, as, and the word that's used there is inheritance. We are born into an inheritance, and it's this inheritance to which our living hope is calibrated. The word inheritance evokes, of course, the story of Israel. For in Deuteronomy, the promised land that God was going to bring them into was referred to as their inheritance. That is, they were reborn, so to speak, through the waters of the Red Sea, through the slavery in Egypt, and brought into a covenantal relationship with God established at Sinai. And then they were promised an inheritance. And in similar fashion, we too are reborn in Christ, out of slavery to sin, we are brought through the sea of baptism, if you will, that signifies our rebirth. And then we too are given a new inheritance. But this inheritance, unlike earthly inheritance, is imperishable, undefiled, and, and fading. Or one that can never perish or spoil or fade, as verse 4 puts it. As one commentator said, the inheritance is untouched by death. That's imperishable. Unstained by evil. That's undefiled. And unimpaired by time, that's unfading. It is compounded of immortality, purity, and beauty. 
Think of how different this inheritance is from the earthly inheritances that we receive from our parents or grandparents, usually in the form of heirlooms or money that might be spent on a vacation or a new car or a new home. But these things like the garden boxes that I built five years ago will perish, spoil, and fade. They won't last and they won't escape the clutches of death and decay. These treasures that moth and rust can so easily destroy. One of Mandy's and my favorite verses has always been Ecclesiastes 5.15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. When we were just out of college, Mandy painted a little watercolor of this verse for me with a picture of kind of a hobo with a bag over his shoulder. And it's something that I kept in my study as a, ironically, a cherished possession, which when moving more recently to the new study, I've discovered was destroyed by water, uh, which is kind of ironic. Um, but nonetheless, this is the reality. We can carry nothing in our hands. And the inheritance that we have in Christ is different from any other kind of inheritance. It's not capable of being diminished in any way by death, by evil, or by time itself. And Peter goes further, it's preserved, kept in heaven for us. That is, it's assured to us by the power of the God of heaven, the one who reigns over the world. Hope, as we've said many times, looks to a better future. And this living hope of the Christian looks into a future inheritance that far outweighs anything that we could enjoy today in the present day. Well, what is this inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading? And I would submit to you, it is nothing short of the new heavens and the new earth. The new creation of God about which Isaiah wrote long ago. Romans 4.10 talks about Abraham as the heir of the world. Well, the greater Abraham, who is called by the author of Hebrews, the heir of all things, he brings a greater inheritance. We will be co-heirs with Christ, as Romans 8.17 says, in the new creation of God. All will be ours because all will be his and we belong to him. The new creation is our inheritance, and this is kept in heaven for us until, as Revelation 21 and 22 cite, the new city comes down out of heaven, and the inheritance, the heart of it all, is God himself, because it says the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will be the sun in the moon in that new city. This is our assured hope, the inheritance of the new creation, and that is the substance of our living hope. Verse 5, Peter continues, goes on and speaks as well about a future salvation. The New Testament talks to us about salvation in terms of past, present, and future, and all are true. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. But what Peter has in mind here is that future salvation in the last time, as he says at the end of verse 5. That is the awaited day of Jesus' return, when he will consummate the victory that he has won through his cross and resurrection. On that day, we will be delivered once and for all from the world of suffering and pain and ushered into an inheritance about which the inheritance about which verse 4 speaks. This will be the new creation, the kingdom of God, into which we have already been reborn, but which we have not yet received fully. Our situation in the present is a bit like someone who has ordered tickets for a big show. And those tickets have come in the mail, and you've got them in your hands, and you're holding them, and you're excited about that future show and what it will be like when, you're, when the band is on the stage and you're sitting in the crowd eagerly awaiting the first song. But right now you're waiting. You're looking forward to that day. You're longing for it. And similarly, we are awaiting the final day, the day when all will be well. And it's this to which our living hope points. 
Our living hope then is oriented to this final day when we will enter into the kingdom as glorified image bearers of the one true God. And this is what animates our imagination and motivates our present response to our circumstances, which we will begin to consider in a more thorough way next week as we turn to verses 6 through 9. But as we wait, and I'll close with this, look at what else verse 5 says. Not only is God keeping our inheritance, the one that is kept in heaven for us, but he is keeping or guarding the heirs as well. That's you and me. Now in the present day, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our circumstances that we would prefer not to be experiencing, that God of power, the God whose power is guarding our inheritance, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, Peter says that power, that power that spoke and stilled the storms, that power that called Lazarus out of the grave to come back to life, that very power is now in the present day shielding and guarding us even now. Remember, Peter is writing to Christians in Asia Minor who are suffering and encountering trials and difficulties. But even in the midst of those, Peter affirms, that power of God is over you, guarding you until the final day. That is our reality. Born into a living hope is that we are shielded now by the power of God until the final day comes when we will walk into our new inheritance. So rest assured, people of God, be at peace. This is your situation And if this isn't something that you've been living into, if this isn't something that animates you in the moment of the circumstances that we're in in the midst of this pandemic, ask our gracious God to show you again, to take you up to the mountaintop again with Peter and to see the reality of this living hope into which you have been reborn. Ask him to show you what it means for you personally. And if you're longing for hope, if this pandemic has caused your world to be turned upside down as we know it has and has made those things in which you have placed your hope come to a screeching halt and you're looking and you're wondering where is this hope then I urge you to think again about these realities the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the inauguration of a new kind of creation a new kind of world into which you are invited by God's grace and mercy none of us deserves to be here none of us deserves to inherit the 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 new creation the new heavens and the new earth none of us deserves to be guarded or shielded by the power of God in the present day. None of us deserves to have a hope that can withstand the decay of the world and the death that permeates the world. But all of us are invited by the wonder and grace and mercy of God to become part of a people who have a living hope. And I hope that you will hear that invitation today. Let's pray. God, our Father, we cry out to you to move in our spirits, our hearts, with the reality of your hope, the reality of the resurrection, the reality of our new birth, the reality of what life looks like with you. We thank you for these words from Peter that cause us to look out, to look up, to get perspective. How I pray that we who are in Christ would rest all of our lives upon this hope and that we would praise you as Peter praises you for the great things that you have done. God, meet us in our circumstances, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.